Hey listeners, Harry here for another episode of Air Power and International Security. Today we have Dr. Natasha Kurt on the show, talking to us about the development of an increasingly aggressive Russia to try and understand Russia's actions on the international stage, such as their constant vetoing of US plans, for example, or their deliberate intimidation of much of Eastern Europe, which has recently culminated in the shocking attack against Ukraine. It's too easy to slip into this dichotomy between good and evil. And there is a rather prevalent assumption, it seems, that Putin is inherently evil, which supposes that his actions against Ukraine were somehow inevitable. But this is not entirely the case. Putin's specific decisions have occurred in part because of the circumstances that have been created by a myriad of different factors. And if we are to familiarise ourselves with current events and understand the enemy in front of us, we have to comprehend their motivations and the broader strategic significance of certain actions and policies. I have deliberately not recorded an episode on the war itself, yet, because I think there's already so much out there, despite it being incredibly difficult to see through the fog of war. But we will be bringing you episodes on that conflict and on the effects of air power soon enough. Today's episode is about explaining, or at least beginning to explain, how we got where we are today by looking at the wider context surrounding Russia's actions. Thankfully, Natasha is an expert on Russian foreign policy and has published widely on Russian relations. In 2011, she set up the Working Group on Russian and Eurasian Security at the British International Studies Association and has also taught international peace and security at King's College London since 2002. So, let's start talking about Putin. Hi Natasha, thanks for joining me today. Really pleased you could come on the show and talk to us about the development of Russian aggression on the international stage. My first question then is a bit of a background question. What did Russia look like after the end of the Cold War? And why didn't Russia form closer ties with the West after the end of the Cold War? Well, I think immediately after the end of the Cold War, Russia did actually have quite a good relationship with the West, as you probably know. Um, and um, in general, during the Yeltsin period, starting in 1991 and ending in 1999, you know, there were ups and downs, but I would say that relations were generally, you know, reasonably good. Um, and for example, even when Russia invaded Chechnya the, on the first occasion in 1994, you know, the, the West didn't really come out with much criticism, condemnation, um, and generally, you know, the West was supportive of Yeltsin, and also Russia cooperated uh, in the UN Security Council and so on. I mean, there were no formal ties established, of course, and, and I think now you can see that, you know, this is one of the kind of bugbears, if you like, that Russia has, um, you know, there's this idea that, you know, Russia should have been um, somehow kind of included in a kind of broader Kind of European security kind of system, if you like, you know. So at the time, I think in the immediate post Cold War period, there was this idea that what later became the OSCE should, you know, become this kind of security mechanism in a kind of pan European sense. 
so ties were established it depends really what you mean by close ties I mean you know I would say that there were there was quite a good relationship on the whole you know there were tensions over partnership for peace and, and so on of course and certainly we get to the mid 1990s but there is a debate of course over whether NATO should have expanded and so on but I imagine we'll talk about that later on. Yes I'm sure we will. So given that context how does someone like Putin rise to the top of Russian politics and become such a dominant force? I mean he was selected to be Yeltsin's successor um, in 1999 um, you know having been uh, not for that long actually but having been appointed head of the successor to the KGB but then he was appointed by Yeltsin to be the kind of interim president when Yeltsin's health was failing there were all these articles who is Mr Putin but it wasn't only in the west that people didn't know really who he was it was also within Russia you know I remember when he was appointed you know um, there were these articles in Russia saying you know who is Mr Putin you know it felt as if he'd come from nowhere I mean, he'd worked previously as well in the Peter, uh, St. Petersburg mayoral administration. Um, and I think there he established a lot of contacts and built a network of people that he continued to rely on after he became president. Given his relative obscurity then, did he have much of an impact on Russian politics after he was elected? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think fairly soon he, he was making an impact. I mean, he was elected president formally in um, spring of 2000. And um, his first year was not um, a great year because he had the Kursk disaster, you know, the submarine that sank. And, you know, that felt very similar in a way to the way in which the Soviet authorities kind of tried to pretend that Chernobyl hadn't happened, for example. You know, so it was a similar kind of feel, if you like, you know, in the sense that they were um, trying to kind of you know, cover things up. But I guess 2001, then you had 9-11. And I think that was an interesting time because, you know, Russia sort of tried to, Putin tried to um, reach a kind of understanding, if you like, um, with the West, you know, it saw 9-11 as this kind of opportunity, you know, to kind of tackle terrorism together because Russia was very concerned about what was happening in Afghanistan because obviously you've got the kind of um, you know Central Asian states that border Afghanistan and then problems around drug trafficking and so on which could also potentially affect the Russian Federation so I think Russia did see that as an opportunity but there was a, a lot of I guess disappointment at the fact that in the Russian view the US was was just kind of framing this in terms of kind of US homeland security rather than opportunity to actually kind of, you know, build bridges and partnerships, if you like, with Russia. Is it fair to say that Russia or the Russian state is something quite unrecognisable compared to the UK or something that we would recognise as a, as a functioning democracy in the 21st century? Yeah, I mean, it certainly... Um, you, I mean, obviously, it's not a parliamentary democracy. Um, you know, it's a presidential system. Certainly, initially, it seemed to be more um, perhaps along, you know, the lines of France, for example, 
or, or the United States for that matter. But increasingly, um, there's a very personalistic kind of hue to politics in Russia. Um, you know, there's a lot of cronyism and Putin, what you talked earlier, asked earlier about what impact Putin had. And one of the things that he did, which, you know, was very different to Yeltsin, um, under Yeltsin, you know, there were regional governors who had quite a lot of autonomy. Yeltsin said at one point to the regions, take as much independence as you want. I mean, he didn't mean to the extent that, you know, they could break away from the Federation. And that was, in some people's view, what led to the attempted breakaway of Chechnya, which ultimately had to be, well, didn't have to be, but was put down with the use of force. So for Putin, the kind of chaos and instability that reigned in Russia in the 1990s, you know, this is how the Yeltsin period is now characterised. You know, the kind of free reign given to these governors was part and parcel of that. And so one of the th first things he did was to reassert control over these governors and um, to construct what people called the power vertical, essentially, just a top-down system. So when he came to power, it was very much about re-establishing authority um, over these kind of loose cannons, if you like. We're obviously hearing a lot about the oligarchs that are quite important and significant within that structure. But oligarchs aren't specific to Russia, right? We have oligarchs in, in nearly every country. So why is the term oligarchy becoming so synonymous with Russia? What sort of influence do they have in Russia? Well, first of all, in the 1990s, you know, the oligarchs that were, that kind of supported Yeltsin, you know, they were different oligarchs to the ones we see today. And essentially one of Putin's other remits when he came to power was to tame the oligarchs, as, as people put it. Um, you know, the oligarchs were seen as having gained far too much influence on the Yeltsin, yeah, and they were kind of seen to be almost controlling Yeltsin, if you like. Um, so the oligarchs that we see now are, are different oligarchs, if you like, and essentially they've become wealthy under Putin. So they can directly trace their wealth, if you like, to, to Putin in the sense that, um, you know, they've become wealthy essentially under his presidency, right? But it doesn't mean that they can rest on their laurels, if you like. Essentially, they owe him and they do have to deliver results as well. And so they control, you know, largely these people are in control of, you know, the kind of big oil and gas companies, energy companies, um, which we hear a lot about. So it's a very, I think, what Fiona Hill called hyper-personalised regime. Um, so it's really Putin. So it's not just Putin, you know, but a circle of people around him. I mean, the oligarchs don't, are not actually in government as such, although they have been at times, you know, you've had a kind of, back and forth between government um, and private enterprise. It's like a fusion of state and private, but they're not necessarily fully owned by the state. And so there's what some people call a kind of manual control of the economy. There's a sense in which, yeah, the oligarchs are really quite accountable to Putin. So it's not so much that they have influence, it's that they there's a kind of big pie, essentially, they all get a piece of it. So that system of, of Putin's oligarchy surely isn't inherently belligerent. You mentioned that after 9-11, there was a willingness in Russia to, to build ties and to combat terrorism on a global scale together. So when does Russia become a more aggressive, a more antagonistic power? 
I mean, obviously, it's been a kind of gradual transformation. It hasn't happened overnight. I mean, first of all, so 1994, you know, you had the invasion of Chechnya, which was, it didn't really succeed in its aims. And 1999, there's a second intervention in Chechnya, and this is largely spearheaded by Putin as interim president. And this was um, soon after the Western intervention in Kosovo. And essentially, I think Kosovo is really very much a kind of watershed in Russian relations with the West. Um, and I think if you have to really understand how the very different way in which Russia perceived that intervention, you know, it was a huge shock to Russia um, because this was an intervention carried out by NATO. So for Russia, this was an out-of-area operation. So enlargement hadn't formally yet taken place. And also, of course, um, you know, there was no authorization from the UN Security Council for that intervention. And Russia, you know, very much pointed to the intervention as an unlawful and an illegal act. And uh, for Russia also, it was a kind of almost like a mirror image of Chechnya. So for Russia, you know, it was the same kind of scenario, essentially, you know, Muslim Islamic terrorists, you know, trying to um, break away uh, from the parent state, if you like. So I think you have to understand that that this was really unacceptable to Russia. And, you know, this was very much, you know, Western kind of military aggression in Russia's view. So mm -hmm. I think this is the point at which, I mean, there'd be already been some tensions, but I think it was really Kosovo that sort of highlighted, I think, you know, the different ways in which Russia viewed European security um, and, and the way in which it, it did still view, I suppose, of NATO um, as being a kind of aggressive organization. You know, it didn't it didn't see it see the operation as a humanitarian intervention. It saw it as kind of an aggressive act, essentially. Yeah. And that is then surely compounded by NATO's expansion in 1997 into the former Soviet satellite states. Is that a reasonable point to make then, that NATO's expansion created a, a more belligerent Russia? I think it's very difficult to, you know, look at it in that way, you know, in a kind of cause and effect way, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. And of course, you know, currently, you know, there are people suggesting that had NATO not expanded, then we wouldn't be where we are now. I mean, I'm not sure that that's a wise way of looking at things really. You could argue it didn't help, but I mean, unless NATO had completely disbanded, then it would be in a way against the whole spirit of NATO, if you like, had it not accepted, you know, these members and, and they, you know, they wanted to join, you know, they asked to join. I mean, partnership for peace. I mean, Russia uh, sort of was able to participate in that to some extent, but they actually then withdrew their participation because there are also perhaps issues around you know, military command and control and, and all sorts of issues um, around cooperating to that extent with Western military structures. But um, there was always going to be a part of particularly the Russian military, you know, that would be hostile to NATO because, you know, they, and Putin, I suppose, as well, you know, grew up in the Cold War um, and for them, NATO was always the enemy. So, it's not that surprising that NATO figures looms so large, if you like, even now. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that is the cause of what we're seeing now. 
Yeah, absolutely. Putin could have been a belligerent force without NATO. Uh, and then, you know, without NATO's strength in that region, he might have been able to do what he's doing in Ukraine in more states, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, you know, I suppose we should be wary of thinking that what's happening with Ukraine is necessarily, obviously, inevitable. You know, it's not that he's been building up to this necessarily for years, but there are very complex um, set of factors, I suppose, um, in terms of the reasons for this invasion. It's important to remember that, you know, he hasn't always obviously been, I mean, I'm not saying he's a pussycat. I'm sure he's probably always been a fairly unpleasant person, but that doesn't necessarily mean that invading Ukraine was always going to be part of his um, agenda. Could the Iraq war be pointed to as another sort of catalyst in this breakdown of relations? You mentioned previously how the intervention in Kosovo was technically illegal because it wasn't approved by the UN Security Council, but nor was the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So was this another example in in Russia's eyes of Western countries intervening in other states in direct contravention of the UN and the international laws that govern the use of force? And does this have a direct impact on Russia's foreign policy? Does it make Russia more antagonistic because it sees other countries not following the rules. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, of course, Russia wasn't the only one that criticised that intervention. But yeah, I mean, certainly Iraq for Russia showed the US as a kind of untrammeled, aggressive power. And again, if we go back to Kosovo, the fact that the US tried to, I mean, that wasn't actually the justification they gave in the UN Security Council. They talked about the revival of Resolution 678 and so on. But you know, the US also framed the intervention in Iraq as part of a kind of broader platform of democracy promotion, right? a broader agenda of, you know, promoting democracy in the Middle East, and that Iraq was going to be the first block in building that. And I think that was really disturbing to Russia. And if you then think about this whole narrative around the so-called coloured revolutions, you know, so then a year or so after Iraq, we have the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, um, and then we have, um, you know, the so-called Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan and, and um, the Rose Revolution in Georgia, you know, where you have this regime change. And so for Russia, you know, what happened in Iraq, you know, was regime change. And though, you know, Russia has tended to bundle all of these things together. And also then when we come to 2011 and the Arab Spring, um, it's never referred to in that way in Russia. It's referred to as, um, you know, the kind of Arab uh, revolutions and they, they are also colored revolutions, just as those regime changes in the post-Soviet space and, and Libya again, you know, regime change. So, you know, this is this has been constructed by Russia as an unacceptable use of force uh, from without, you know, because these colored revolutions in the post-Soviet space and also um, the Arab revolutions are interpreted by Russia as, you know, being, or presented by Russia as being sponsored from without, you know, and, and this is unacceptable. And so it's very much also for Russia about defending sovereignty and, you know, the defence of sovereignty and upholding sovereignty. I mean, it might seem paradoxical, of course, to say that considering what Russia is doing now. And it, in a way, it is quite inconsistent with what Russia has said, what it said repeatedly about Kosovo as well. 
then when you get to 2008 and the Russian intervention in Georgia, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, where it basically recognized the independence of those two entities. And, you know, for Russia, this essentially brought to a halt the plans, the apparent plans for Georgian membership of NATO. You know, so that was a kind of successful campaign, if you like. But Russia framed that very much also in terms of Kosovo. So after Kosovo uh, declared independence, made a unilateral declaration of independence um, for Russia, you know, this was anathema, you know, that um, an illegal act essentially for them, Kosovo breaking away from Serbia and then the West enabling this by recognizing Kosovo's unilateral declaration of independence. Um, Russia said, well, if you recognize Kosovo, then we will apply universal principles um, and then we will recognize South Ossetia and Abkhazia. So they, everything, you know, is linked back to Kosovo ultimately in that sense. So Russia tends to always try to kind of hold up a mirror, if you like, to the West, rightly or wrongly. You know? So it, this is not just about Russia asserting itself in, in the former Soviet space. Um, it's also about Russia kind of demonstrating something to the West about certain values, you know. But invading other countries and influencing events within external countries is surely against the idea of sovereignty. How does Russia, how does Putin conceive of the idea of sovereignty then? In a way, I think their view of sovereignty is often perhaps a bit different to how we see sovereignty, right? And of course, responsibility to protect, you know, which evolved after Kosovo, um, is also um, anathema to Russia because it just sees that as a cover for, you know, old-style humanitarian intervention and, again, disruption to sovereignty. But when it comes to its own neighbourhood, I think Russia sees sovereignty differently. Um, and it also it's quite contextual as well. And it also sees sovereignty, Russian sovereignty, is about capacity, actually. So it's a different kind of idea about what sovereignty is. So it kind of uses sovereignty in a way instrumentally, you know, depending on the context, because you can already see that with 2008 South Ossetia and Abkhazia, that was kind of inconsistent, really, with what Russia had been saying before about sovereignty. I think for Russia, being sovereign is about laying down, also laying down the law to others. For certain post-Soviet republics, the idea of deciding their own future and particularly if that future lies with the West, you know, that's unacceptable to Russia. And, you know, it's come to the point where Russia could only see a resolution to that problem by essentially invading Ukraine. But I think something that it has highlighted, actually, is that this narrative about Ukraine not being a properly sovereign country, that's not new. So with that particular view of the former Soviet republics, you can see how that would make it easier to undertake this kind of intervention and, you know, how it would be possible to sell that to the Russian public to some extent as well. Yeah, because then you're not undermining their sovereignty because they are, the, the, they're the same people, they're one and the same. So you can't take away their sovereignty because it's a shared sovereignty. Yeah. And, you know, people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, for example, I mean, he Obviously, he was a big Russian nationalist. I mean, he was very anti-Soviet. You know, people talk about Dugin and his influence. I'd say people like Solzhenitsyn, maybe more of an influence on Putin. 
the anti-Soviet part, because Putin is very anti-Soviet, although he'll obviously use some parts instrumentally, some parts of kind of Soviet legacy where, where it's useful, but he's essentially anti-Soviet, but you know, in favor of restoring some parts of the Russian Empire in the sense of, as you say, the kind of idea of the Slavic kind of brotherhood of peoples and, and so on. So Russia is committed to upholding the idea of sovereignty or its own idea of sovereignty that's unequal between various nations for various reasons. And this has set it against the likes of the USA and NATO who have engaged in regime change illegally in Russia's view. Has this escalated tensions in part because of Russia's relative decline compared to the likes of America and China, for instance? I think that certainly is a big part of it, yeah. Russia wants to be on a level with the US because it feels that it's lost that kind of equal footing, if you like. And of course, given that, you know, Russia is the continuator of the Soviet Union, you know, in a kind of formal sense, you know, it, it kind of, it's almost as if it wants to kind of step up to that role and, you know, reassert itself then also in the former Soviet space. Although I wouldn't say, you know, that Russia has been seeking to restore the Soviet Union and actually Putin, although people often quote Putin as saying that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a geopolitical catastrophe. Well, I mean, actually, we can agree it kind of was a geopolitical catastrophe because it, um, you know, created a lot of problems in the former Soviet space. But actually, he wasn't necessarily regretting the demise of the Soviet Union when when he came out with that. But I think he was talking very much about, you know, the consequences of the collapse, you know, because there was a, you know, we forget now, but there was a lot of inter-ethnic conflict, you know, in those former Soviet republics after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I mean, not on a scale of Yugoslavia, of course, but there was in Transnistria and in Tajikistan uh, and obviously in the South Caucasus as well. And so I think Russia isn't, set on restoring the Soviet Union, but it certainly seeks to maintain a certain level of influence there. Um, and I guess the current war is partly about, you know, Russia seeking to maintain that influence, you know, which it felt that it lost um, with the Maidan or was about to lose with the Maidan revolution. Do you think the war is actually having the opposite effect? Do you think this, is, this conflict is exposing Russia's weakness and has Putin's power or grip on power been reliant on the assumption that Russia continues to be a superpower? And has that image been shattered now? Yeah, I mean, internationally, certainly you could argue, you know, that that image is perhaps it hasn't been shattered. I mean, we don't know yet because we haven't come to the end of the war, unfortunately. But um, I certainly think there are a lot of uh, question marks over, you know, Russia as a military power. It's difficult to get the bird's eye view, but it, it does appear that, you know, Russia was, I'm not sure whether it was arrogance or, or what. I mean, having said that, I, I suppose Russia isn't the first. I mean, if we go back to Iraq 2003, as we know, you know, the US declared victory after a few days and they thought it was going to be a swift campaign, partly because they thought they'd be welcomed with open arms, you know, and that people would be so grateful that Saddam had been de deposed. But, you know, they hadn't understood Iraqi society. Um, and actually, in a way, I mean, I wouldn't like to draw too many parallels, but in a way, we see that Russia hadn't understood the nature of Ukrainian society. They hadn't really been paying attention to what was happening inside Ukraine, partly because they dismissed Ukraine 
as not being a proper country and and as being just you know full of corruption i mean it was full of corruption but you know there are also other things going on civil society and you know all sorts of other things and after 2014 obviously rebuilding their military and building building up their military and so that's quite interesting in the sense that russian power seems to be very much about um hard power and in a way had they not in their arrogance dismissed and kind of failed to make any effort to to really understand ukraine seeing it as just a kind of i don't know mini version of, of russia i guess you know, it's a kind of dependency of Russia, you know, you know, so it's a kind of failure, you could argue, of kind of Russian soft power, perhaps. What sort of challenges do you think Putin will face going forward? I've, I've seen in the news that there are rumours of a coup in Moscow. How, how true is that? Or is that just sort of gossip? I mean, I've, I've, I know the article you're talking about, but actually one of the people quoted in there, Andrei Soldatov, um, has already on Twitter said he doesn't remember saying half of the stuff that they say that he said. So the sources used there are questionable. Um, and I think periodically people talk about a possible coup. I mean, you can never rule it out, of course, but actually we don't really know whether there will be a coup. I mean, coups are always possible, but I think the likelihood of a military coup doesn't seem that high to me. I mean, obviously, there may be dis dissatisfaction within the military. I mean, you can imagine that there is. And, you know, if you go back to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, it was very much the KGB who were the kind of warmongers, if you like, you know, who wanted to intervene, whereas actually the military were exercising, advocating caution. Um, so, again, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're completely unified in that, but, you know, military, you know, could of course, have been much more cautious in this regard um, and therefore much less likely to be approving of, of this invasion and obviously given the way that the campaign has been going and so on. I mean, you know, people have come up with all sorts of possible scenarios, you know, that somehow maybe the oligarchs might get together with elements of the Siloviki, you know, the in intelligence community and uh, kind of mount a, a challenge um, I think one thing to bear in mind is um, the fate of the oligarchs kind of depends on Putin, you know, in a way they're kind of tied to him. So I think it'd be quite difficult for them to be involved with anything like that. And to some extent, you could argue also the intelligence community. I mean, we don't know, but I mean, I think, you know, Putin has a lot of probably compromat on these people as well. So it seems from the outside, at least, that Putin's hold on power is still pretty strong or stable enough. Well, I mean, again, you know, it's becoming much more as in, you know, during the Cold War when it was very difficult to work out from the outside looking in what was really going on. I think what I'd say is, um, you know, he has such a small circle of people. He already had such a small circle of people that he trusted. You know, you could count them on the fingers of one hand. And then with the pandemic, he very much, you know, then didn't even necessarily meet with those people. So he trusts very, very few people. And it may be that he's beginning to not even trust those people, you know. So I guess if we get to the point where he becomes one of those kind of, you know, typical sort of paranoid uh, dictators, if you like, along the lines of, you know, Kim Jong-un, for example, then one could argue that, you know, the chances of maybe a coup might be more likely. 
some people suggest that the only way that Putin's going to go is really if you know somebody hits him over the head with a sharp object. Would that even bring about much change in Russia? Taking Putin out doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it doesn't mean that automatically the person who comes after is going to be of a completely different character. I mean, you know, it would still be in their interest, obviously, to to line their pockets and to get the rents from the oil and gas and so on. But obviously, we know, you know, there are those within Russia who have sought to oppose Putin. But, you know, with the leader of that movement in jail, I'm not sure who else is able to mount any kind of campaign like Navalny, certainly not now, obviously in the current very repressive kind of situation within Russia, it's hard to see what could be done. Well, that is a shame. And uh, sorry to be leaving it on a low note, but thanks very much for coming on the show, Natasha. That's been really useful and very insightful. Thank you for inviting me. Brilliant stuff there from Dr. Natasha Kurt. It's always important to remember that every decision has a much broader context and being able to understand that helps to understand current events. And this is of course vital if we are to seek an end to Russia's hostility and violence once and for all. Next up, we have another topical episode on cyber war and cyber law. With cyber becoming a bit of a buzzword at the minute, I thought it was worth considering how or indeed if international law can actually regulate offensive cyber operations, especially as such tactics can be employed by non-state actors or be easily denied by the states using such methods. So be sure to look out for that. And until then, it's goodbye from me.